Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Thank you, Ivan, and thank you, Neil, for leading for us. Good evening. Good evening. Lovely to see you all. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Just whilst you're turning there, Ivan did come one night to play badminton, but he refused to play against me. Uh, I think the reason for that is he didn't want a pensioner showing up someone in their uh, late 20s at that time. So, um, But someday I'll get a game with him. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start our reading at verse 22. So we're going to be reading verses 22 down to 32, and then we'll skip down to verse 38. So Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, this is the word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's Jesus, and Jesus healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is like waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's skip on down to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And we will end our reading there, knowing that God will bless to us the public reading of his word. Well, before I begin, let's just commit ourselves once again in prayer to God, seeking his guidance and his wisdom. Let's just pray.
Father, we thank you for the truth that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. There is no turning back. There is no um, falling back into the former self. Father, there is nothing that we can do to change our state of salvation. We are once saved, always saved, as the old phrase goes. And Father, we thank you that it is not because of ourselves, but it is all because of what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you that this is taught to us through the truth of your word. Lord, we just pray that um, just as you spoke to us this morning through your word, Lord, that you will speak to us once again this evening through your word. Lord, we pray that even though we have sinful minds and sinful hearts, Lord, that we are clouded in judgment. Lord, that you will um, uncloud any sinful thought, Lord, any distraction from us, Lord. And Father, that your spirit will point us to the truth of your word. Your spirit will illuminate this text to us and point us to and glorify Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Father, we want to hear from you this evening. So Lord, we pray that you speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Ivan said um, this morning, we were looking at um, the beginning of Jonah chapter 1. And it's funny how everything in the Old Testament are not just separate stories, but they're actually historical events. And um, Rudyard Kipling said that history would be better remembered if it was taught in stories. And that's what the Old Testament is doing. It's teaching the historical offense of God's people in the past through narrative and stories. Well, have you ever been in another country that doesn't speak English? And to try and help you feel at home, they include English translations, literal English translations, in the shop signs, in the road signs, in the instructional signs. Basically, any sign that you see. However, what happens here is that these people translate the signs without any understanding of the English language. And what you have is this form of lost in translation, or um, as someone once said to me, Chingrish. Um, I'm not being racist, by the way, that's what it's called. And this is an example here, um, if this will work. And take, for example, this fire extinguisher here somewhere in um, East Asia. Now, it looks like a fire extinguisher to you and to me, doesn't it? But this is actually, if this will work, Aaron, help me out here. A hand grenade. This is not a fire extinguisher. This is a hand grenade, according to those lovely folk over there. Can you imagine watching Saving Private Ryan or Band of Rubbers and watching uh, those men who bravely fought for us in World War II throwing fire extinguishers or hand grenades at the Germans? And um, it would seem unlikely. Well, if you're in the Middle East, um, you may maybe want to go for um, a takeaway. So you may go to some exotic and luxury takeaway that sells that exotic food, fish and chips. Well, in fact, what you'll find is they sell fish and chips, actually. Um, so it's a bit close, but you might break your teeth. You see, signs when mistranslated can be funny. And I would note here that if you want to look these up at home, I would urge you to do so with caution. You see, signs are helpful. If we want to get somewhere and we don't know where to go, we don't know how to get there, we can just follow the road signs. And the road signs will tell us how to get there. But in order to follow the road sign, we have to read it and interpret it correctly. But if we fail to read the road signs or follow the instructions, we can miss the point of what they're pointing to. When we're looking for a sign, we're either looking for an indication to make sure we're heading in the right direction. A clear mark to show us that we are going in the right path. 
Well, you see, in the Bible, God would give his people signs that would point them to a future event. And the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to draw us readers to the conclusion that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and everything that the Old Testament points to. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy or a family tree, and it's traced through David and Abraham and many others. You see, in the past, God had made these covenants with these people. You see, these covenants were like promises or pacts or agreements. They were promises that sealed a relationship between God and his people. You see, Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. And David was promised that his offspring would sit on his throne forever. And you see, the crux of these promises would be seen in one man. One man who would fulfill each and every single one of these promises. He, in the Old Testament, would be called the Messiah, the promised one who would redeem God's people and bring freedom to those who sought it. Now, there was a group of people who held on to these promises at that time. These people were called the Jews, for they were known as the past as God's people. So as you read the Old Testament and you're reminded of the truths of God, and as you read stories from history, these stories are to act as signposts, they're to direct you to the fulfillment of God's promises that were made to his people. Well, some time has passed since the Old Testament was written, and in Matthew's Gospel, we begin to see the bigger picture here being unveiled. As in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15, we see that Jesus finds opposition in Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees. These Pharisees were seeking to destroy Jesus. So Jesus withdraws from their vicinity and heads until the wilderness. And people from all around the area come to witness his power. And it says that he healed them all. These people who Jesus healed were both Jews and non-Jews, or as you might know them, as Gentiles. Now there's one person in particular who we read um, about here this evening. This was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. And after Jesus healed him, the people said, Can this be the son of David. Now the Pharisees denounce Jesus' authority to perform such a miracle. The Pharisees call him Beelzebul, one who is known as the prince of demons. You see, this is the occasion that our passage is found in this evening. Jesus is once again met by opposition, a religious group who are skeptics to Jesus' authority as the son of God. So with that in mind, there are three points that I want to pull from this passage here this evening that we will look at. First thing we will see is the sign that is sought in unbelief. Next thing we will see the sign from the prophet. And then finally, by way of application, we will see the sign of the son. Firstly, let's think about the sign sought in unbelief. Now, after witnessing such a spectacle like healing a demon-oppressed man, any one of us would be amazed at what Jesus has just done. But you see, these religious leaders were not impressed. In fact, they denied that Jesus had the power or divine authority to do so. You see, Jesus to them was Beelzebul, a sorcerer, a magician, someone who practiced the dark arts, a crime which back then was punishable by death. But Jesus rebukes her claims, stating in 26 and 27, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then 
will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? You see, therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, Jesus wasn't the only exorcist around doing these things. The Jews had their own exorcists who were working in tandem with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. So if Jesus was casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul, then aren't these other men who are Jews doing the same thing? Aren't they aligned with Beelzebul as well? But you see, if Jesus claims that he performs these acts in the power of the Spirit, who has enabled him to perform miracles in order that these people might see the Son of God has come, or the kingdom of God has come for the Son of God who was sent. And you see, because of this, the Pharisees didn't accept this sign. And they simply wanted another sign just to prove to them that Jesus is really who he says he is. So here in verse 38, if you look at me, we have this command. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now this command doesn't seem sincere in any way. There's more like a tone of sarcasm and arrogance about it. You see, they aren't convinced by what Jesus did just a few minutes ago. So why would they ask for another miracle or another sign? What sign do you even think would convince them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah or even the Son of God? You see, the Pharisees were looking for proof. Proof is something that will convince them of the truth and change their minds into who Jesus really is. So this sign would be a miraculous event of supernatural proportions that would point them to the truth of God as seen through his promises in the Old Testament, which they were experts in. However, there's a small problem here. See, these Pharisees have just seen a sign, as I've already mentioned. Jesus expelled the demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that didn't convince them, then why would anything else convince them of who Jesus is? You see, the Pharisees' problem is a problem of unbelief. You see, they want a sign, but in wanting a sign, they are also wanting something that will point them away from the sign giver. And instead here, they are simply showing signs of their unbelief. If this will work. Aaron, any time I click this, I'm pointing to you to click, okay? Good man. You see, many people want to believe in God, but they will only do so according to their own terms. You may hear a ludicrous ultimatum of a sign. I will only believe in God if he turns my eyes blue. I will only believe in God if he gives me a full head of hair. And if God does give me a full head of hair, I will believe in him instantaneously. I will believe in God if he gets my broke down car going again. You see, these claims might feel like you're owed something for good behavior or a reward for your actions. God, give me Ferrari. God, give me a jet plane for my good deeds. But you see, these claims can also become superstitious. They become superstitious prayers. God, if you are real, help me win the lottery. God, if you are real, and this is a miracle, let Manchester United win the league this season. But unfortunately, these prayers and beliefs can become less frivolous and more concerning. God, 
If you are real, cure me of this cancer and I will believe in you. God, if you are real, help fix my broken marriage and I will believe in you. You see, for many, belief is simply a conditional vow. It is a vow which is made in the conditions that they have provided. And once those conditions have been fulfilled, then they will oblige. And the longer they hold on to these conditional vows that they have made, the harder for them is to be convinced of the real truth that is set before them. You see, these Pharisees fall into this camp. They have seen Jesus heal the sick and drive out demons. But they now demand a sign. A sign that will convince them of the truth, but instead they have the sign of unbelief. So what sign does Jesus offer them in response? Well, Jesus offers them the sign from the prophet. Let's listen to Jesus' words here and read them and think about the sign which he offers them. Let's look at verses 39 to 40 again. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let's unpack this here together. So Jesus here calls out the Pharisees and religious leaders, and he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. You see, the reason um, why he calls them this is specifically is because of their unbelief. And this unbelief was replicated time and time again in the Old Testament by God's people, the Jews. These were the Pharisees' past ancestors. And here in Matthew 12, Jesus is saying the same thing to these religious leaders as was said to their forefathers. You are just like the evil generation that existed before you in the past. You want to see God, but you only want it in your own terms. And the only sign you will get is what happened to Jonah. Now, we looked at the story of Jonah and very simply the beginning of it this morning. But for those who might not have heard it, let me quickly summarize. As Drew helpfully told us, Jonah was a prophet from Gath Hefer, um, who lived in Israel and served God under King Jeroboam, who was known as evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that in 2 Kings 14. And one day, Jonah, or God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a pagan city in Assyria. It was seen back then as the second capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah was to go there and proclaim to them the judgment of God for their sin. Very simply put, God will destroy them because of their lives of immorality. But Jonah here heads in the opposite direction. Instead of going inland towards Nineveh, Jonah heads coastbound to Joppa, where he will board a ship which heads to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is on the southwest coast of Spain, just past Gibraltar. Or as Drew helpfully told us this morning, and it is known today as Sevilla. And Jonah here defies God's command and attempts to run away. So Jonah jumps ship and sets sail. However, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4, we see that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship threatened to break. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God would use water 
to bring judgment upon those who are disobedient to him and preserve those from this water judgment by his grace. For example, think of Noah and the ark. Or else think of Moses um, when he was born. Um, he was put into that basket when Pharaoh commanded that all the babies would be drowned, all the Israel, Israelite babies. And Moses was preserved as he was placed into that basket and placed into the river Nile where he was kept safe. Well, and then later on in Moses' life, Moses and the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea and Pharaoh and the Egypt and the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea after God had stopped holding back the waters and the waters crashed down upon the armies. And there are many other examples. If you look through the Psalms, particularly in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and the Psalmist speaks of God's waters crashing upon him because he feels like um, he has done something wrong. God is disciplining him. You see, the storm that God sends in this case, in Jonah's case, was so severe that the destruction of the ship and the crew's lives were all, almost imminent. You see, each sailor cried out to his own God and they all frantically threw anything that they could grab overboard to lighten the load of the ship. Jonah's attention here is grabbed by the captain and aware that he is the cause of the storm because God's wrath is upon them all, Jonah sacrifices his life as he is thrown overboard by the sailors and we know that after the sailors threw Jonah overboard, the storm ceased. There was calm. It was peaceful and quiet again. You see, the pagan men through this feared the Lord greatly and made vows to him as they repented. Well, in, in verse 17 of chapter 1, it tells us about Jonah's fate. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And what happened to Jonah as he was swallowed is that he thought that he was at the point of death. He calls it when he went into those waters, being in the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew for the place of the dead. And being cut off from God, he says, I am driven away from your sight. But with hope, Jonah longs to meet God again. And then the water judgments of God close over Jonah to take his life. He felt trapped, helpless, and hopeless now. But listen to Jonah here in chapter 2 and verse 6. He says these words, Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. You see, Jonah was then vomited onto dry land by the fish through God's command. And Jonah's life was saved. He was restored to um, the status of a prophet and he was used by God to bring a nation to repentance. You see, these Pharisees were experts in their history and experts in the Old Testament. So they knew all about Jonah and his exploits. How, how, how after the fish um, threw him up on the land and he went and preached judgment to Nineveh for their sins and Nineveh had repented of, for what they had done. All because of the preaching of Jonah, fulfilling God's command and bringing to them God's word. Jesus, on the other hand, says this to the Pharisees. The only sign that the Pharisees need to pay attention to will be this. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
or to put it in terms that we would use today, the Son of Man would be in, in the grave. The Son of Man will be in the tomb. The Son of Man will be dead. So what Jesus is saying here is that for three days and three nights, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, or the Redeemer, he will spend three days and three nights in the grave, which will be assigned not just to this generation, but also to each and every generation. Well, here what I'm talking about, as I'm sure you all know, is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. You see, in Jesus' life and ministry, he performed many miracles and signs. But each one of these miracles had the purpose of demonstrating Jesus' compassion for the broken, displaying his divine being and giving a taste of the foreshadow of God's ultimate purpose. But you see, there is one sign, an even greater sign, which gives us all the necessary proof we need to believe. A sign of God's ultimate demonstration in his covenantal love towards us, which is the sign of the Son. Sorry, my clicker's a bit slow tonight. Um, you see, Jesus could have done multiple things to prove that he was the Son of God. In fact, there are moments throughout the gospel where Jesus declares that he is and he proves it through his ministry. You know, Jesus could have lit up the sky with legions of angels who would all in unison announce Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Redeemer for God's people. Actually, in fact, when I come to think of it, he did do that. We all know that when Jesus was born, there were shepherds in the field and the angel of the Lord came to proclaim to them the message of hope that would be for all the nations. And after that, that choir of angels gathered and all sang, glory be to God on high. Or what about some sort of political campaign? Jesus could have maybe took to the streets and he had the slogan, let's make Israel great again. With the man, Jesus Christ, as the front runner, the face of the campaign and the sign by which people will buy into and follow as their hope. But you see, to Jesus, these things were insufficient. You see, they wouldn't have done the trick. In fact, they weren't the purpose and the reason why Jesus had came. And you see, Jesus throughout his ministry performed many signs and many miracles. And they were all revealing his power, his sovereignty, his authority, and his divine control over everything. Yet, that was still not enough to convince the unbeliever. So Jesus gives us all the ultimate sign. The sign of the cross in his death and the sign of the empty tomb in his resurrection. Now, at this point, I'd like to clear up a couple of misconceptions. Now, whilst Jesus points to these Pharisees of the sign of um, Jonah being in the belly of the fish, we have to remember that Jesus and Jonah are not perfect parallels. We have to remember that Jonah was disobedient. Jonah ran away from God, but after God disciplined him, he reluctantly went to Nineveh and followed God's will. But we know that when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus was not only perfect, but he was also perfectly obedient unto God the Father. And we also know that Jonah, when he was in the belly of the fish, did not die. In fact, he prayed to God and God restored him whenever Jonah acknowledged his saving grace. But you see, Jesus did die. Remember when Jesus was hanging on that cross, he shouted those words, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. 
And as we look at the cross, we see the lifeless body of the Son of Man as he hung on that cross. Jesus was then buried in the tomb and then three days later he rose from the grave. And the connection is this. That after Jonah disobeyed God, God sent his judgment upon Jonah. And in Jonah's sacrifice, he saved those sailors who then repented. And Jonah repented for his sin as he was in that fish for three days and three nights. And afterwards, Jonah is brought back to a new beginning. He is given a new life or a second chance. Whereas when Jesus sacrificed himself on that cross, he died on that cross, not in judgment for anything that he had done, but he died for the sins of all men, all nations. Jesus acts as the ultimate sign and demonstration of God's love in his death. You see, Jesus as the Son of Man bears the full wrath of God as he pays for the ransom of sin for our lives. And God, in being fully satisfied in Jesus' death, raises him from the dead three days later to show that the price has been paid and that through Jesus there is now hope of life. You see, Jesus, in declaring this sign, is telling his audience, and he's telling us this, that he is the greater Jonah. For just as Jonah's actions brought salvation and repentance to the sailors and to the Ninevites, Christ's actions bring a far greater salvation to us all, all of us here this evening. And that is salvation from our sin. But why are these, so, these signs so important for us today? Well, Douglas, Shane, Douglas Sean O'Connell says this, the sign of the resurrection or the death and the resurrection of Christ is fully sufficient for at least two reasons. Firstly, it is historically viable and verifiable. And secondly, it allows room for faith. And then it is faith that allows room for anyone and everyone who will believe. So the reason why I give you some of that background information on Jonah, about where he was from, the king who he served under, and the geographical locations and the people, etc., it is because of this. It is to show you that the story of Jonah is not just a story. It is an historical event of one man being used by God through his extraordinary measures to bring a nation to repentance for their evil deeds. And when it comes to the man Jesus Christ, we know this. We know that Jesus was a real person who was born in Bethlehem. And he was born during a time when the Romans demanded a census of the area. Well, therefore, Jesus would have had to be accounted in the history records. Furthermore, the gospel writers give us historical background information to help us trace and narrow in on the setting in which Jesus was born. For example, in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 to 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, here we simply have evidence that points, helps us point to when Jesus was born. We know that Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor in charge and the governor he placed in charge of Syria was Quirinius. And Luke does this again actually in chapter 3. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituraria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas. 
You see, this isn't like when you're in school and you're asked to write a 2,000 word essay and you only got 50 words, so you try and bulk it out a wee bit by adding all this, you know, um, those were the days of yore and the days of yore was so. Um, you see, the writer here is giving us evidence to support the validity of Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry. Jesus was a person who existed in history. And here we have ample evidence to help us trace back to that time when Jesus existed. So we know that Jesus existed as a man. Well, what about his death? How do we know that Jesus did die on a cross? Well, according to historians, we know that a man called Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. But we also know that men and women die every day, whether it's by execution or natural causes or tragedy. You see, death is something we cannot escape. But someone coming back from the dead, well, you see, that's not normal. That's not a natural everyday event. And if Jesus did rise from the dead, well, how do we know that it's true? Well, firstly, there's no body to be found. You see, if Jesus was still dead, there would have to be a body, or at least remains. But there were eyewitnesses. There were early Christians who all claimed that he rose from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or have died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to me. And then you have the rise and continued strength and growth of Christianity today. You see, all around the world, millions of men and women all claim to follow Jesus Christ, many of whom are risking their lives to live out this claim. The apostles, we know that they all die violent deaths as a result of the truth that Jesus Christ is alive and is Lord. You see, these apostles believed in the God of the Old Testament, and now they begin to follow Jesus Christ, and it's because they believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Redeemer, he is the Son of God, he is the one who is sent to save the world from sin because of the overwhelming evidence. And the evidence is this, that Jesus came down, he gave, himself, he gave everybody the signs to show who he was, he died for their sins, and then to prove that he died for their sins, he rose from the dead. And as eyewitnesses of this, they all believed who Jesus Christ was. So we know that this sign is historically valid and can be verified through eyewitnesses. So if the sign is not the issue, then what is the issue? Well, you see, the Pharisees wanted a sign, but they weren't going to believe it regardless of what they had seen because they were blind to the truth and they rejected it time and time again. They were just like their forefathers who had received God's covenant and rejected it because they didn't believe or they didn't have faith. You see, they wanted a sign that suited them. And for a lot of people, they wanted to believe in Jesus Christ as long as it suits them. Whether it's a sign that they asked for, something that you can take advantage of, or maybe it's something that will affirm their actions a reward for their behavior. In other words, a sign that will point God 
to them. But you see, that's not what the sign is for. The sign was to point them to God, but they failed to see it. And they failed to see it because they didn't have faith. You see, the Pharisees were certain that they were right with God through their obsession with the law. But they were so obsessed that they simply added to the law, valuing their traditions and their ethics over the law and failing to uphold the greatest law, the greatest commandment which was ever given by God. And in failing to do that by not loving the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind and strength, they inadvertently broke the law that they were trying to keep. But you see, faith is not holding up a list of credentials that you have possessed over a lifetime. Faith is not um, holding up this list of achievements, seeing um, that God um, will reward you for these actions and that whatever you have failed in, Jesus will add to that. And so it'll amount up to what you couldn't make up. But you see, faith is holding out your hands, which are empty. Showing that there is nothing you can give and nothing you can do to please God that would be worthy enough of your salvation. And yet we know this, that God sent his son to live a perfect life, to lay down his perfect life for the payment of our sin and to suffer and die at the hands of wicked and evil men only to be brought back to life through the power of God. And by faith in what Jesus Christ has done, we place all our trust on him in all he is as Lord and in what he's done, knowing that it is simply enough to save us. Now, I don't know where you're at here this evening, where you stand before God in terms of your salvation. Perhaps you're like the Pharisees, that you, you came here tonight looking for some sort of validation or reward for your good deeds and your charity and everything that you've done. <coughs> or maybe you're like those sailors in the story of Jonah. You're here with someone who's invited you. And all of a sudden you feel this weight of conviction because of the sin in your life and that you're caught in this storm and you feel there's no way out for yourself. That you need someone who might be able to rescue you, who can take the weight off you and bear the responsibility of it all, sacrificing themselves for you. But you see, the sign Jesus gives through Jonah points us to our greatest hope and validation that we ever need. You see, we don't have to earn our way into heaven. We don't have to hear about our wretched sinful lives and feel like there's no point in trying to do anything about it. So we might as well continue being sinners and do whatever we want to do. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us this offer of life. A life of knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior, as Lord. Knowing God who created us and loved us. Knowing that we matter to God and that he will look after us no matter what we are going through. Knowing that he will never abandon us despite our attempts to run away or disobey him. And knowing that he uses all of us to serve him. You see, if you're here tonight and you think that you've messed up, no matter what you've done, no matter how great you think it is, you come to the cross of Christ and see that the price has been paid and that nothing can separate you from the love of God because it is God's love shown to you in Christ which has joined you to him. And you know this because of the faith as you hold out your hands and you realize that this is all I have. 
There is nothing that I could bring. And yet Christ has given me all in him. And because as Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he has made us alive together in, with Christ. You see, he has given me life. He has given me salvation and an opportunity to start again. He has given me and he has given you anything more than you can ever imagine. Because he has given you the greatest thing that ever existed. The eternal satisfaction of knowing God who made us, who loves us and who died for us. Redeeming us unto himself and giving us this hope that surpasses all things, even death. And it is by grace that you are saved. It is the gift of God to you here this evening. You see, the gift of God that anyone can receive, even yourself, provided that you believe in Jesus Christ and receive him into your life as Lord by faith. Let me close with this. You might have heard the old phrase, history has a tendency to repeat itself. It is a phrase attributed to philosopher George Santayama. Well, writer Mark Twain took this phrase and he reworked it saying this, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. You see, what Mark Twain was speaking about was that he was living in the world which was impacted by the evolution of industrial of the Industrial Revolution and the global wealth in the world, which has skyrocketed because of industry. Well, as for ourselves, when we look at the sign of Jonah, we know that it's true, we know that it happened, but it points us to an even greater reality. There is a point of history which points us to an even greater point of history. It is the apex, if you will, of the Bible. It is a greater Jonah, a greater saviour, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, whose life and death and resurrection fulfills all of God's promises to his believers. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we just pray now that you will impress it upon our hearts. Lord, that you will have challenged our hearts. And Lord, we just pray that and we will take this truth with us, and not just throughout the week, but through the rest of our lives. Lord, knowing that you'll remind us of it time and time again as you speak to us. And Lord, that as we read your word, we will see how it all points to Jesus and what he's done and for us and so that we could be right with you again. Father, I pray for anyone who is here tonight, Lord, that do, does not know you. Lord, that they will be convicted of their need of salvation. And Lord, that they will see that Jesus is sufficient um, to save them and by faith that they will believe. Father, we just pray as we leave all these things into your hands now. In Jesus' name, amen.